0: Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie announcing details of this operation this morning. Negar Mojtehedi reports.
1: Canadians stuck in Israel amid deadly fighting between Israel and Hamas are desperately trying to get home. British Columbians with family there are worried for their loved ones. Surrey teacher and diversity expert Annie Ohani has worked in Palestine offering humanitarian aid. Her Canadian family is in Israel. My parents are currently stuck in the region. Um, so they are located in the Negev, so Beersheba. Uh, that area. And so they, they are quite close to, to Gaza itself. While other countries like Argentina have dispatched planes to rescue their citizens, Canada has been slower to respond. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie announcing today that two military aircraft will leave Tel Aviv by the end of the week. We are looking at options through Jordan. I've been in contact with the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Jordan. And once Canadians would be in Jordan, then they would have access to commercial flights. And I've been in contact with commercial uh, airlines as well to be able to do that. Plans are still being finalized for Canadians unable to get to Tel Aviv. Global Affairs says there are nearly 500 Canadians registered in Gaza and the West Bank. Negar Mosheheri, Global News.
0: The Surrey Teachers Association is now calling on the province to scrap the controversial foundational skills assessments. This as parents have reported increased pressure from schools to write the exam. Richard Zussman has more. It's a test getting a failing grade from teachers. Lizanne Foster is from the Surrey Teachers Association.
1: If there is this time and money in order to take all this time out of the regular curriculum, Then give us, put that time into training teachers. The
0: FSA is required for students in grade four and seven. There are exemptions under specific circumstances, but Foster says parents are reporting principals calling them directly, encouraging them to rescind a request for an exemption and have their kids write the test.
1: Senior management is pushing down on management in the schools to increase the number of people, the number of kids who participate in these tests. Why?
0: The province says the test is key to understanding gaps in the system. The teachers have long argued there's no proof a change in classroom resources are tied to test results. Richard Zussman, Global News. And some West End residents are frustrated that the city of Vancouver is not going ahead with the Comox year-round school street project. As Catherine Garrett explains, the project was run by parent volunteers in the West End who say it will be missed.
1: For the last two years, Comox Street has been car-free during school pick-up and drop-off hours to give kids a safe route to and from Lord Roberts Elementary School. The city opting to not move forward with the project due to concerns from locals about accessibility, parking congestion and space for emergency vehicles. Now the city is looking at installing an interim bike lane on Comox between Bidwell and Cordero to balance active transportation and vehicle access. Roberts Elementary PAC chair and cycling advocate Lucy Maloney is disappointed with the decision. We have to accept at some stage that we need to accommodate people who are getting around on foot, by transit and on bike. Um, and make sure that they have safe ways to get around. The city says it is working with the community and school board to integrate feedback into next steps. Katherine Garrett, Global News.
0: Malone was speaking on the Jill Bennett Show on CKNW. And Vancouver Mayor Ken Sims is announcing new steps aimed at building more housing stock to tackle the affordability and low vacancy rates for renters and owners alike. It's largely an extension of the already in-place Vancouver plan, which earmarks 26 village areas and allowing three- to six-story mixed-use, low-rise buildings, condos, and townhomes to be built in the areas. Speaking at a conference today, Sims says the plan is to build as much housing as possible as quickly as possible. By doing this in a motion, it's actually not just sending a signal to us internally, but it's sending a signal to the entire city. This is what we're focused on. This is where we're making a stand. This is what we want to be measured by, and this is what we're going to do. The plan also touches on getting the province to crack down on local short-term rentals and pay special attention to densifying underdeveloped neighbourhoods around SkyTrain stations in East Vancouver. The motion is set to go before City Council next Wednesday. Global News Time, it is 5.34, now with the latest AM730 traffic. Some good news in Vancouver, that crash involving a pedestrian on Georgia that was northbound just after Denman has cleared, but there is still plenty of residual delays coming through there and northbound towards the Lionsgate Bridge. As well, there's some road work to watch out for in Surrey at the intersection of Scott Road and 103A Avenue. All directions are affected there, so avoid it if you can. Surprise! This Thursday, one day only. Spend $50 and get an extra 15% off your shop at Save on Foods. Don't miss out. Some conditions and exclusions apply. In the AM730 Traffic Center, I'm Gavin Lopez-Smith.
1: Hi, I'm Christy Gordon with your Global Sky Tracker Weather Forecast. Certainly brighter out there today, and we're expecting sunshine for the next two days. Both Thursday and Friday, though, you can expect low-level cloud or fog through the morning hours, but plenty of sunshine through the afternoon. Overnight lows will drop down to 8 degrees, so a little chilly, but we are expecting 14 to 18 degrees on Thursday and potentially 17 degrees to 20 degrees on Friday. A touch cooler on Saturday as rainfall begins to push in. It looks like it will be on and off through the weekend. There'll be some breaks of blue sky, but overall, we're back to cool, unsettled weather.
0: In Merritt, it's 16 degrees and sunny. Outside CKNW at Pacific Centre in downtown Vancouver, it is 16 degrees. Now for a check on the markets on CKW, the Dow was up today 65 points to 33,804. The TSX finishing 162 points up to 19,633. And the Canadian dollar trading lower today at 73.55 cents U.S. Global News Time 536. I'm Kareem Gouda.
2: Hey, welcome back to the show. Now, we spent a lot of time over the summer talking about drought conditions, wildfires. Well, a new report from Stats Canada shows that summer drought and extreme temperatures reduced electricity production uh, in BC last July to its lowest point of any July in the last 15 years. Now, of course, this is a province that's growing by about 100,000 residents uh, per year. Uh, Significant growth, more demand, uh, and a lot more sales when it comes to EVs as well. And it's interesting. Number because in many ways it uh, highlights the challenges that are there before us. Yes, we produce lots of energy in this province, hydroelectric energy, uh, but as the years progress, we're going to have to produce a lot more with our growing population. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the latest numbers is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Uh, good afternoon, Keith. Hi, Jazz. Hi. So, the numbers here, it is amazing in this province that uh, uh, you're seeing the impacts of climate change to a certain degree, just based from July to July, that it's the lowest that we've seen uh, in 15 years.
3: Yeah, BC Hydro's latest quarterly report is actually quite eye opening and worrisome because it paints a picture at a time when we're supposed to be ramping up the production of electricity to switch to cleaner fuel. A combination of factors driven by climate change, which is higher temperatures, drought conditions, low snowpack, and low precipitations are all combining to drive down electricity production and drive up electricity consumption. This comes at a time when we're just at the at the launch, really, of a B.C. government clean energy initiative, which is really to greatly increase our electricity use by the year 2030, which is not very far away, and Hydro now is projecting we're going to be in a, an electric electricity deficit by 2030, even with Site C coming online. That's how dire the the situation is, which really uh, presents highlights the urgency of hydro creating new power, clean power. They've got a power call going out next spring Mm -hmm. for clean uh, power, which is electricity and also wind and solar. We'll see what comes back. But even with that power call, this quarterly report, I invite people to check out Nathan Griffith's piece in the Vancouver Sun on this, uh, paints a pretty grim picture of some goals that may be unattainable. And it does raise the prospect, if we go through another year next year with drought and low precipitation and low snow. uh, this problem is just going to accelerate in terms of its urgency and worsening.
2: Why do you think it's been such a, a shock? Like for years we've talked about, oh, we've got abundance of energy. We really don't need sightsee. All of a sudden you're telling me now, reports are showing that we're going to be out of power, power that we're creating here and generating here by 2030. It's it sort of just come out of the blue in the last few years, it seems like.
3: It seems, although if you, you know, this has been one of my hobby horse or my areas of I'd like to keep an eye on this. And you and I both come like energy stories, energy policy. We know that we need more energy as our population explodes. And it just comes with it, more energy consumption. So where is this energy going to come from? I wrote a column a few months ago. Where is this this electricity going to come from? No one's provided an answer. Even with the power call from Hydro, you get the impression going through their, their latest report that there seems to be some pessimism here that we cannot meet these lofty, well, maybe that's not the right word for it, but these high uh, goals to achieve high electricity use to replace fossil fuels. And it's a, it's a real conundrum. And so, again, the urgency is on to create these power um, uh, 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 projects. In Alberta, you've got a whole backlash in rural communities against wind and solar because it is takes up... A big chunk of their land. It's an mm-hmm. eyesore. It's not the most attractive type of power project to have in your backyard. Yet we need more and more of these around BC. Not we're not going to build a lot more dams, if any. I mean, site C. We need we need the equivalent. There's some estimates nine more site C's to to meet these electricity demands. And then you got hydro coming out with this report which not only casts doubt on the demand side, whether we can meet the demand, but then on the production side, it's really a bleak assessment because of climate change. The combination of factors is really coming together at the worst possible time.
2: So if uh, we're not going to build another site, C just because of the, the challenges before us, we go to independent power producers, let's say we do that. That's certainly, I don't think, going to be enough if wind and solar is... Something that is, uh, you know, receiving pushback from citizens, farmers, ranchers, uh, uh, many other communities. Uh, What's left? I mean, I just cannot see anybody, any company risking building nuclear in this province in any way.
3: Well, you know, that's sort of the the thing in the closet, isn't it? Nuclear. (laughs) Um, But no one has the political capital to go forward with nuclear. Uh, Even though Germany relied on nuclear for years, they shuttered their, their nuclear plants, which were safe and clean. Now they're back to producing coal in Germany. Germany's gone backwards because they've abandoned nuclear. We have nuclear in Ontario. They're not abandoning that. I don't think we're going to build nuclear in BC, but can we build enough wind and solar fast enough? Hydro's report suggests that we're not going to be able to do that because they think we're in an energy deficit by 2030, which means in the last year BC imported a record amount of electricity, particularly from the United States and some from other provinces, and that importation likely will have to increase just to meet demands because we're not going to be able to produce enough. And we haven't even begun talking about electric vehicles.
2: Yeah. I mean, the the talk has been that just to deal with all the electric vehicles that we're going to be purchasing over the next few years, you'd require at least two more sightsees, maybe three. And that doesn't include just the growth of human beings (laughs) moving here, which means we need more housing, more everything else. And every house these days, it seems like certainly single family homes, there is generally an air conditioner that comes with it uh, as well. I mean, somewhere along the way, we do have to make a decision. The rubber hits the road. You can't be in a deficit, think our neighbours are going to help us out. I mean, uh, do you see a will there from elected officials saying, look, we have to move forward quickly and get a project going of some sort, whatever it may be, but we've got to start generating electricity beyond just a call from independent power producers?
3: I think what we're going to see is is a reduction in the expectations of electricity levels. And one thing I keep looking at, I think governments are going to have to drop these targets that are associated with electric vehicles because I think they're unattainable and they become almost a luxury item compared to the everyday energy costs you have in your life, particularly at this point. They're still an elite vehicle. Uh, this goal of getting something like 90% of all new vehicles by 2035 electric is just, it seems unattainable. And when you stack that up against what the other priorities when it comes to electricity use, I think EVs, I've got, I long had skepticism on the, how this is going to replace the the combustible engine car in our car culture and whether it should or whether we should just take the money that's being invested in EVs and throw it wholly on mass into transit and clean transit. And I think that's where the discussion is going. Um,
2: the other issue, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day here is that, um, uh, the political will we've talked about, uh, needing to move forward, uh, to, to do all of this, hydro doesn't talk about this or, you know, certainly I know. I've heard some conversation, but it may, would it also just be changing our behavior, which means, Hey, uh, Jazz Johal, you've had dinner at uh, 630. Uh, you know what? Don't fire up the dishwasher till 11. Are you going to pay more for that power during that sort of, you know, seven to 10 PM period?
3: Yeah, this is time of use. And this has been kicked around for some time. A lot of people were suspecting that's what smart meters were all about. That was going to dictate your energy costs, but I think we're headed there. I think hydro is going to be very creative in their solutions to this. what's looming as a crisis of, of uh, redirecting consumer use at certain times of day. It seems to be a no-brainer, but I, you know they've got a lot of money invested in thinking about these things, and I think hydro is going to be very creative in uh, the days uh, ahead of how to... Uh, both meet demand in terms of what the consumers are looking for and meet production in terms of what governments are looking for.
2: Well, uh, it's one of those those issues, you know, Keith, we're talking about it here, but you know one day the rubber's going to hit the road and one of these days it is going to require some political will uh, to really be honest with the public and say, look, we're heading into a, a, a uncharted territory. We've always had enough power and the cheapest power. I think even now our power is the fifth cheapest in North America, but we're heading in a different direction. <laughs> That's for sure as more and more people move here. Uh, Key, thank you for your time. Okay, guys. Take care. All right.